This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Have to admit, I was a little surprised to hear that BC Ferries was taking another run at this, but news out this morning that they are launching a pilot project coming up in a few months for the month of June. If you buy a meal at the Pacific Buffet, if you're eating at the Pacific Buffet, and you always know if you get on the ferry, the lineup for the Pacific Buffet is long. You got to get there fast because it's a great deal. Good food, right? But if you're eating at the Pacific Buffet and you buy a meal, you will be allowed to buy one or two drinks along with your food. That's it. It's not like they're opening up a bar or letting people drink as much as they want. That's it. One or two drinks to go along with your Pacific buffet that you're enjoying on the ferry. Do you think this is a good idea? That is our hot question of the day. Do you go, yeah, love it, about time? Or do you think, no, this is a bad precedent. They should not be doing this. Or maybe you're not sure. Uh, Let us know. Go to our hot question of the day. You'll find it online at simisara980 on Twitter. You can also find it at CKNW. You can drop me an email. It's simi at cknw.com. Let me know what you think about this idea. And of course, please call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Pretty straightforward. Do you think it's a good idea to allow people to buy one or two drinks along with their Pacific buffet on certain BC ferries starting this June? Good idea or not? Or maybe you're not sure. Weigh in with your thoughts on that. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to have some thoughts on it. Uh, there are plenty of people, and I know the first thing you think of is, well, people are driving. Should you really be serving drinks to people who are going to be driving? Well, that's everywhere, isn't it? Put a pub in the middle of somewhere, people are going to drive to get there too, right? You're still serving drinks to those people. And a lot of people who are not the drivers of those cars would probably also like to have a drink with their dinner. Uh, they're, maybe they're just the passengers. There's a lot of passengers and foot passengers on those ferries too. So do you think this is a good idea or not? Let us know. Simi Sarah 980 cast your vote on this. They are already coming in fast and furious or drop me an email or give us a call on our buzz line. Oh boy, it's quite the media frenzy down in the U.S. today because this morning that long anticipated and redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's report uh, was released. And this is the report that investigated possible collusion between Russia and and the Trump campaign, and it was released to Congress at the same time. So before that report was actually released, though, this morning, the Attorney General in the United States, William Barr, held a press conference where he kind of presented his version of the report's findings in a more substantial way than he did when he released that written summary. You may remember that story back on March the 24th. Uh, The thing is, though, I mean, he was doing this before anybody had the report. So it's not like people could challenge him on what he was saying. Uh, Essentially, they were just kind of putting their version of this out there before the report came out. He made it clear that there were efforts from and by Russia to influence the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. But he said they were acting alone and he doesn't believe they were coordinating with anybody on the Trump team. As you know, one of the primary purposes of the special counsel's investigation was to determine whether President Trump's campaign or any individual associated with it conspired or coordinated with the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. Volume one of the special counsel's report describes the results of that investigation. As you will see, the special counsel's report states that his Quote, investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government 
in its election interference activities. I am sure that all Americans share my concern about the efforts of the Russian government to interfere in our presidential election. As the special counsel report makes clear, the Russian government sought to interfere in our election process. But thanks to the special counsel's thorough investigation, we now know that the Russian operatives who perpetrated these schemes did not have the cooperation of President Trump or the Trump campaign, or the knowing assistance of any other American for that matter. That is something that all Americans can and should be grateful to have confirmed. Okay, so again, remember, this is William Barr, who's the Attorney General, putting forth his perspective uh, on what he believes was in the Mueller report. But when you read through the Mueller report, you might have a bit of a different interpretation on that. Now, William Barr continued, he says that from the beginning, he disagreed with some of the special counsel's legal theories on obstruction, and that the investigation was entirely unprecedented. As I addressed in my March 24th letter, the special counsel did not make a traditional prosecutorial judgment regarding this allegation. Instead, the report recounts 10 episodes involving the president and discusses potential legal theories for connecting those activities to the elements of an obstruction offense. After carefully reviewing the facts and legal theories outlined in the report and in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel and other department lawyers, the Deputy Attorney General and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. Although the deputy attorney general and I disagreed with some of the special counsel's legal theories and felt that some of the episodes examined did not amount to obstruction as a matter of law, we did not rely solely on that in making our decision. Instead, we accepted the special counsel's legal framework for purposes of our analysis and evaluated the evidence as presented by the special counsel in reaching our conclusions. In assessing the president's actions discussed in the report, it is important to bear in mind the context. President Trump faced an unprecedented situation. As he entered into office and sought to perform his responsibilities as president, federal agents and prosecutors were scrutinizing his conduct before and after taking office and the conduct of some of his associates. At the same time, there was relentless speculation in the news media about the president's personal culpability. Yet, as he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. And as the special counsel's report acknowledges, there is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents and fueled by illegal leaks. That is William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, putting forth uh, what he believes is, you know, in the Mueller report. Although when you read through the report, uh, there is some things to contest here. For instance, many times over the last year, uh, the president had, you know, tweeted or said that it was fake news that he was trying to fire Robert Mueller. But this report lays out that there were numerous instances where he did actually try to do just that. Now, the president spent his morning at an event for wounded veterans in Virginia. Uh, He was in a good mood. He was celebrating, and he was saying that this sort of hoax should never happen again. And they're having a good day. I'm having a good day, too. It was called 
No collusion, no obstruction. I'm happy. There never was, by the way, and there never will be. And we do have to get to the bottom of these things, I will say. And uh, this should never happen. I say this in front of my friends, wounded warriors, and I just call them warriors because we just shook hands and they look great. They look so good and so beautiful. But I say it in front of my friends, this should never happen to another president again. This hoax. This should never happen to another president again. Thank you. That is the president, some of the president's response this morning. Now, meanwhile, as I said, though, this is uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages long, right? It was only released at 8 o'clock this morning. So there's a lot of sifting through the information still. Uh, CBS White House correspondent Paula Reed was also part of that coverage this morning for CBS. And she said that what stands out the most to her in all of this is how the president reacted when the special counsel was appointed. What stands out the most to me out of this entire report is the insight that we're getting into the president's frame of mind the moment he heard that special counsel Robert Mueller had been appointed. While public-facing President Trump has just tried to dismiss this as a witch hunt, try to undermine the investigation, what we see here in this report from a a first-hand account from someone who was in the room is that the president was scared. A direct quote from former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former chief of staff, uh, describes the president as slumping back in a chair and saying, quote, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm effed. He goes on to say, everyone tells me if you get one of these independent counsels, it ruins your presidency. It takes years and years and I won't be able to do anything. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. This is apparently an exchange that occurred almost immediately after his former Attorney General Jeff Sessions informed the president that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had appointed the former FBI director to be the special counsel to take over the Russia investigation. And of all the things I've read, it's really struck me because earlier today, Attorney General Barr talked a lot about how hard this has been on the president, uh, talked a lot about his emotions and his feelings and how this was unprecedented. But we're getting more of that, actually, in this report and learning how the president was not only upset about this, he was frightened. That is Paula Reed from CBS. It's interesting to note, though, that not every presidency is done in by a special counsel's report. I was thinking, as Paula was talking there, about the Clinton presidency. They had a special counsel report that was Kenneth Starr, which started out looking into Whitewater, uh, ended up uncovering the whole Monica Lewinsky situation, ended up with impeachment proceedings against the president. And not only did Bill Clinton survive that, uh, let's see, he was reelected and remained popular right till the end of his presidency, as a matter of fact. Now, of course, that's a different situation when we look back on what we know about the Monica Lewinsky situation. Uh, But back then, he remained popular, despite a pretty damning special counsel's report at that time as well. All right, let's go to Washington, D.C. now to get the latest on what we're learning in this Mueller report. It came out at 8 o'clock this morning, our time, but it is hundreds and hundreds of pages. So reporters have been uh, going through it, assessing the information. Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington Bureau reporter. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. How goes the reading? Uh, well, I'm, you know, it's, it's 448 pages and you kind of start skipping all over the place. So I've probably done like 200 pages, just not in any kind of sequential order. Ah, OK. So what have you found interesting in there so far? 
Well, I mean, a lot of the things that we are reading uh, either on the collusion side of this or on the obstruction side of this are things that, you know, big media outlets had been reporting for the last couple of months, even up towards the last year and a bit, that the president kept saying, look, this is fake news, this is all a hoax, this is a witch hunt, none of what uh, the news media is telling you right now is real. And it turns out that a lot of the stuff that we were reporting on and that colleagues were reporting on is actually factual and inside this report right now. So while this totally doesn't vindicate and exonerate the president the way that he thinks he does uh it's not you know really all that bad as of right now and and this is going to kind of be left in the hands of congress almost to see what they can do right they're going to get a less redacted version i understand uh coming up uh probably in the next couple of days uh, what i found interesting in there is some of the stories about the u.s political rallies that were organized by a russian troll farm well, Russia's playing a big part into this uh, into this whole situation right now. Uh, you know, we saw uh, things about collusion where we learned that and we already knew that while well, Russia was kind of interfering in the election and they were, uh, you know, the bots were all up and, and, and these uh, these rallies were taking place and they were hiring people to take part in these th- in these events. We did learn that nobody or at least according to this report that nobody inside the Trump campaign and Trump himself actually had anything to do with this, according to the report. Uh, what it doesn't really lay out is, sure, they weren't the ones that were kind of organizing all of this, but were they willingly accepting and acknowledging of all of this and just not saying that they were? These are the questions that have kind of been left unanswered. Right. So it's not as kind of free and clear as obviously the other side is making it out to be. Absolutely. The president thinks that he's been fully vindicated and the attorney general as well. When he was making this uh, this kind of uh, preamble to the report that when that he when he spoke earlier this morning, basically laid out the line and said, well, look, I went through all of this information. There's no collusion. There's no obstruction. Uh, the president basically is free and clear to walk along. And we're finding little bits inside of this report that don't really line up with what the attorney general is saying. And in some cases, is completely opposite to what's actually inside that report, which is why it's interesting to know that uh, nobody who actually drafted this report uh, was on stage today to be able to answer anything. Right. Let's talk about the firing of the special counsel, because there was a lot of stories out like a year ago or so that said uh, that the president was trying to find ways to get rid of the special counsel. At the time, he called that fake news, not happening. But this report shows that it was happening. Absolutely. It shows it, both the New York Times and the Washington Post were the ones who called this uh, story to the headlines to begin with. And it says uh, that the president had gone to originally his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to be able to uh, try and get him to pull some strings and have Robert Mueller taken off this job. Because as we've learned now, the president was fearful of what Robert Mueller was going to do. We uh, we saw him use an expletive saying that his uh, presidency could potentially end because of this. We know that Don McGahn eventually did not do that. He eventually resigned his position. We also know that the president tried to get the former acting attorney general, Matthew Whitaker, to also play a role into potentially getting uh, the special counsel to back off these investigations. So as the president called this fake news, as he got his base to rally against the media to call us out for for basically concocting lies, it turns out we were the ones who were actually reporting the news all along. I guess my question with that, too, is what was he so afraid of? If if by appointing a special counsel that he thought that his presidency was over, what did he know about what was going on? Well, that's the big question right now that remains unanswered. If you were not guilty all along, why were you potentially, yeah, why were you potentially trying to obstruct justice? And just because the special counsel chose not to obstruct justice, potentially because of this uh, longstanding policy to not indict a president, doesn't mean that you weren't actually getting in the way of these investigations. And there are a lot of people calling out to the president now for how he used to act in his personal life. He would do things that were kind of contrary to everyday rule and would simply just get away with it. And now that's happening again as he sits in the Oval Office. Right. Something else that was interesting in there that I was reading about was the Hillary Clinton emails. So he put out, he he asked for help in obtaining her emails and he received that help. 
he did receive that help. Within five hours, we learned that that uh, Russian hackers and, and people with inside a couple of Russian entities actually uh, started uh, kind of doing the groundwork to get these information uh, to get these emails rather dug up and then hand them over to WikiLeaks. And if you actually go through the president's written answers that he gave to the special counsel, he remembers very little about absolutely anything that was asked of him except that moment in July of 2016 when he asked Russia to go out and hack those emails. He was able to say everything that happened that day. But remember, he said that he said it sarcastically and anybody with an objective view would know that. Right. Okay. So lots of information that is still in there then. But I'm getting the sense with this, Reggie, that there's a big difference here between what the special counsel viewed as the legal definition of things and what we can perceive or what comes close to it. Absolutely. So the special counsel, you know, their job wasn't to sit there and remove the president. Their job was to sit there and investigate uh, the actions that were surrounding the president's campaign at the time. And that's what they did. What they did was kind of leave a pathway open to let the attorney general make a uh, make a he doesn't like to call it a conclusion, but basically a conclusion as to what the report was. But this doesn't stop in any way lawmakers and Congress in general uh, from being able to advance investigations forward. We know that they're going to ask Robert Mueller to be coming in sometime before the end of May. We know that a number of Democrats, despite the fact that leadership doesn't want them to talk about it, are continuing to talk about impeachment. So this is just going to be another one of those steps for them to climb up, get on top, and potentially push investigations further. This is going to dog the president as he heads into 2020, with Democrats really hoping that this helps their base get them further in the election next year. Wow, so you're saying this isn't done. This is, It almost makes it sound like there's a new chapter beginning here. Well, not only is this not done, I mean, sure, the report is out there, but there's a lot of unanswered questions, but there is a big investigation ongoing in the Eastern District of Virginia and in the Southern District of New York, which uh, the president still plays an active role in uh, as, as an unnamed or as a named uh, co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator in some of these charges that are uh, that they're investigating right now. So while sure, the federal prosecution is all rested and is all out there right now, state level ones are continuing. And those are the ones that have no pardon uh, policies when it comes to a president. Interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. We'll let you get back to your reading. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington Bureau reporter with the update from Washington today. So this report, which, by the way, is available online. You can read the whole thing yourself. There's even a searchable version if you would like to look for certain words and things like that in there. It was 20 years ago this Saturday, April 20th, 1999. Two students culminated months of planning. They put on black trench coats and then they attacked their school. They were armed with guns and an arsenal of bombs. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold terrorized fellow students and teachers inside Columbine High School. And the world was watching. I remember watching this vividly as people inside the school were frantically calling 911. Just catch yourself if you have an emergency. Yes, I am a teacher at Columbine High School. There is a student here with a gun. Okay, um, has anybody been injured, ma'am? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the school is in a panic. And I'm in the library. I've got students down under the table, kids. Heads under the table. That is just one of the many calls received by 911 that day. The attack lasted for 45 minutes. 13 people were killed. 24 were injured. And the two gunmen took their own lives as police were closing in on the school. So as I mentioned, Saturday is the 20th anniversary of that awful day in Littleton, Colorado. And in those 20 years, at least 143 more people have been killed in school shootings. That's according to the Washington Post newspaper. And unlike other schools that have experienced that, they did something different at Columbine High School. 
they didn't tear down the school. In fact, the school remains largely unchanged other than the heavy, heavy security that it now has. And that means that they've had to deal with unique daily threats as a result of its kind of weird status that it has now. We wanted to talk more about that this morning with Jessica Contrera, who's a reporter for the Washington Post and has been writing about this issue. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What are things like at Columbine High School today? Um, I think everyone is really shaken up. Um, As you might have seen this week, uh, there was a pretty significant threat to the school. Uh, A young woman flew from Miami to Denver. She purchased a weapon when she made it to to the area, and she um, then essentially disappeared, and there was quite a large uh, hunt for her. She was actually found dead yesterday, Um, and so the community is very, very shaken up. Um, But they are returning to school today and tomorrow um, before the 20th anniversary of the shooting on Saturday. Right. The school looks pretty much the same, right, as it did 20 years ago? That's right. Um, You know, a lot of the uh, schools that have experienced significant school shootings um, in in our time, Sandy Hook, um, Parkland, they've decided to tear the building down where it happened. But in Columbine, um, 20 years ago, the thinking was that if they they were to tear the school down, uh, the killers would have won. And so they rebuilt the school. They did move the library, um, which is where a lot of the deaths occurred. Um, but for the most part, the school looks very similar to it to, to how it looked in 1999. Right. So as a result, what happens? Like, I understand that there's a lot of people who come by thinking they want to take their picture there or interact at the school. That's right. It's, it's really quite disturbing. Um, you know, this is a school, a functioning school. There are kids who go there every day. Um, and yet people, uh, instead of visiting the memorial for those who are lost at Columbine, um, they go to sort of gawk at the school. Uh, they pull in the parking lot. Um, they try to take pictures. And many people even try and go inside the school. Um, that's why there is a significant security team at the school all the time. Um, and they've been stopping more and more people as the anniversary has uh, come closer. There are some days in, in the last few weeks where they've had to stop more than 30 people from in the parking lot. Just because of the upcoming anniversary, it must get always get bad at this time of year then. That's right. Every April is really hard for this entire community. Not only do they have to deal with the trauma of what they've been through, um, the, the, the losses that, that they experience, um, they have to deal with these onlookers and increasing threats that really spike every year um, in April. You recently wrote a story that I just, I could not stop uh, telling other people about and telling them to read. And it was about John McDonald. Can you tell us about John McDonald? Yeah, John is the head of safety and security for the Jefferson County School District, which means he's responsible for keeping Columbine safe along with more than 150 other schools. Um, It's an incredibly difficult job. Um, The way that they approach uh, their work is to take every threat, every concerning statement by a student, everything that uh, in another district might be blown off as, oh, that's just somebody trying to get attention. They take every single one of those things seriously, which means they're responding to uh, disturbing circumstances around the clock. Um, and that's really his whole life uh, is just making sure that his students don't have to experience 
uh, something like what happened 20 years ago. That's an unbelievable amount of pressure, though, on this man and his security team because, you know, they're assessing every single threat. And, and what if they assess incorrectly? I so agree. I, I just, um, you know, I spent, got to spend quite a bit of time with him. Um, you know, and he's the kind of guy who, who takes it all very seriously, but also, you know, can can joke about it. And I think that it comes from a place where he understands the consequences, but it's also an everyday reality that he has to deal with. Um, so he's got to cope with it somehow. And so how much security is there at the school itself? Like what do kids have to go through just to get to school? Um, you know what, they, the, uh, they keep the information on, on exactly how the security is set up pretty quiet just for obvious reasons. Um, they try and make it as normal as possible for the kids who attend school there. They don't want these kids to feel like they're going to school in a, in a metal box. Um, and so, you know, when you are in the halls, if you were to not know what had happened there, it does in many ways just look like a regular high school. Um, and, I, you know, John McDonald's daughter went to school there, um, and she, she talked about how uh, it would just be a normal school until then you have a lockdown or you, you would get used to keeping snacks in your backpack because you never knew when another lockdown was going to occur. Oh, that is just awful there. It's never ending, it seems like, people who come to the school there. And is it, what's going to happen then on Saturday? Is there a ceremony planned or what's happening? Yeah, there's all kinds of things planned. Um, they're lucky this year that the anniversary doesn't actually fall on on a, on a weekday, um, but pretty much every year they don't have school on the day of the anniversary. So this year it's on a Saturday. There's going to be a big public ceremony, um, lots of dignitaries and folks coming in, um, lots of speeches about the people who were lost and about the growth that's occurred since. Um, there's also a big effort to do service projects to pay that, you know, the Columbine community feels like in their time of need, the whole world reached out to help help them. And so they're really focused on paying that back and doing service um, in their community and around the world. So there's a lot of service projects going on, too. Right. Is there a heightened sense of awareness, Jessica, in that particular school district as well, like for other kids who might be troubled, other kids who might make a Facebook thread or something like that? Absolutely. Um, and, and that's actually one of the big lessons of, of Columbine. You know, the, the two shooters who were involved in 1999 and so many of the school shooters since, they, they all show what experts call leakage. They, they tell people what they're going to do either directly or they write it in essays or they do things that sort of, um, you know, are warning signs, are red flags that sometimes end up being the red flags that are missed. Um, and so they do everything that they can to make sure that doesn't happen again. And one of the tools that they use to do this is a, pro- is a program called Safe to Tell, which is an anonymous online reporting system mm-hmm. that any student, any parent can get on and say, you know, um, my friend said this or my student wrote this. Um, and it means that they're getting hundreds of tips uh, all the time, um, but those tips help them stop things that would otherwise be one of those missed red flags. That's so interesting then. So there is a lot of take up of that. So students do use that program. It is incredibly well used um, and well respected. And part of the reason that they were able to achieve that is because they take every one of those tips seriously. Um, The students know if I put something in here, it's going to get a response. Someone's going to care. Wow, what a story there. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. 
Thank you so much for having me. That is Jessica Contrera, reporter for the Washington Post newspaper. Well, as you've been hearing in the news today and on the show, we've been talking about BC Ferries and how they're launching this pilot project in June. If you buy a meal and eat at the Pacific Buffet on certain sailings, you'll be allowed to buy one or two drinks along with your food. And many of you have been sharing your thoughts about this with us today. And you know what? We are going to be taking calls on this in just a moment, along with all the emails and our hot question of the day, because we want to get your thoughts on the open line. But first, we want to talk to Tracy Crawford. Tracy is BC's regional manager for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and they've got some thoughts about this pilot project as well. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. So what did you think about this idea? Um, you know, we definitely have concerns, um, you know, with people being able to consume alcohol and then get into the vehicle and drive off the ferries. Um, I don't have all the information about any type of safety measures um, that BC Ferries is putting into place for the this pilot project, so I'm looking forward to learning a lot more. Um, but, you know, at this point, we definitely do have some concerns. What kind of safety measures would you be looking for? Well, I, I, from my understanding, you know, right now there, at least has been in what I've heard, is that they're having a uh, confined area for consumption, so limiting the area in which people can be served and consume alcohol, as well as a maximum uh, drink purchase, which are, are definitely good measures to put in place um, to manage alcohol consumption on the ferries. But, you know, there are other different concerns, um, training of staff, um, you know, how are they going to monitor this and, and manage the two-drink um, limits, and what type of enforcement is going to be put in place for safety measures, not only for the staff and, you know, for the, all passengers. Right. So if they didn't have these kinds of strict limits and safety measures, Tracy, what are you concerned about what might happen? Uh, well, again, it goes into just someone over-consuming. Um, you know, if you have the staff who aren't trained to identify someone who may have consumed alcohol before entering the the segregated you know, area for, for consumption on the ferries, you know, you have to have a trained staff member to identify that, um, you know, as well as underage drinking. We want to make sure that anybody who um, isn't of legal age isn't being, isn't being served any alcohol. In, in, in this area. So, you know, and then at the end of it, when people are leaving, to identify somebody that may have overconsumed and, and what they can, what measures are in place to, to stop that person from getting into a vehicle. Right. Do you think it's inevitable, though? Like, if you do serve alcohol more openly, will there be problems? Um, I, I don't know if it's inevitable. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that have to be put into place. I think there needs to be the education um, into the passengers and the public. So, for example, if there, you have passengers who can identify somebody, who see somebody that they believe could be intoxicated, um, having measures in place of who they can contact, how, to, how they can reach out to somebody uh, and let a staff member know so they can take care of the situation or intervene, possibly call the authorities and, and again, you know, stop this person from getting into a vehicle. Right. Now, Tracy, we've been talking about drunk driving for decades now. I mean, is this situation getting better? Are people getting the message, do you think? I think people are getting the message. It's still the problem. I mean, it's still obviously a problem with alcohol and or cannabis um, for impairment in driving. But it's it sometimes it's just getting getting constantly of that message out there and being more prevalent in the community, having the police enforcement, more check stops, having them out in the community. But again, really encouraging the public. If you see somebody that you think may be impaired when you're driving down the road, what they can do to hopefully intervene before a crash occurs, you know, by calling 911, being proactive um, if, you, if you have a concern. That's what the police are there for. Yeah, how much of Mad's message now also focuses on, like, impaired driving as in also potentially cannabis? 
Our message has always been the same. Um, impairment is impairment if it's regarding, you know, alcohol and or drugs. If you're choosing to consume any um, alcohol or, or drugs, be, be safe. Plan a safe ride home. Um, you know, plan someone to be able to be the designated driver for the evening. So it's always been our message. Now with cannabis being legal, legal, it's, you know, it's a different education because there's not a lot of uh, information out there of what impairment by cannabis is. So it, it and, and there's not a lot of tools out there to provide to the public about how to identify impairment by cannabis. And, you know, so it, it's a different type of um, world right now, a different type of education, and we're learning as well. We want to get better at making sure that the public knows how to identify if they're going to consume cannabis, how they can be safe and protect themselves and not get into a car or not get, you know, which could right. end up in a crash. Do you think people do report others who they think are impaired on the road? There, there definitely is. Um, the police have, um, periodically we do get reports and we do get updates from the police um, showing numbers of where the public is, is calling number one. But it's still, get, it's still not as, as, I think the numbers is, should be a lot higher, um, you know, based on the fact that this is still happening every day. It is still happening too, isn't it, right? Yeah. Like, do, you must wonder, too, you must shake your head, as so many of us do, and think, like, what, what happens to people that they think they're okay and they get in that car? Well, you know, sometimes people aren't, you know, they're planning, when they go out, they don't plan to consume too much, or they weren't planning on drinking, and, you know, they end up drinking, or, you know, they're out, at, out at, you know, at enjoying themselves, and, and they're making the decision on how to get home safely with a mind that's already impaired, um, so maybe their mind isn't making the right decision, so our our portion, and what we always try to say is, before you go out, just plan that safe ride home. Plan someone else take, you know, being your driver for that evening. This is one of the reasons why we're, you know, we really push and we're, re- you know, with our messaging for ride sharing in, in BC because we do think that's going to make a positive impact in our roads. Okay, so then, given the way this pilot project has been explained to us, that you have to buy the Pacific Buffet, you can't just buy alcohol by itself, and once you buy the buffet, you will also be allowed one or you know maximum two drinks. Does that sound acceptable to you, or what other safety measures do they need? Well, I, I, I guess I, the first question would be, how are they going to monitor this in, in that in, environment? Is is there's their staff who are going to be trained to under to monitor if someone has only two drinks. You know, if somebody else buys somebody else their drinks for them or, or you know, anything like that, how is that going to be monitored? So that would be the first concern. A second concern, it, it is a short ferry ride, so, you know, at two beverages, you know, depending on the person, can, can be quite a lot. Um, so, again, there's so many variable factors. Our biggest piece again is just really going back to the to making the plan to be safe. If you're gonna, if you want to consume, is there somebody who can be driving that vehicle rather than yourself? Right. So it's safe to say then, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has some concerns about this pilot project. We definitely, and and again, we haven't seen the any of the the safety measures that BC Ferries is putting out there with this plan. It is a pilot project, so um, you know, again, we haven't seen any of the details. We would really love to and and be able to provide our, our input and feedback um, with our concerns, and and we definitely are very open to that. But at this point, you know, we haven't seen anything, but we we were very vocal about saying that we are concerned, and we really hope that the that there's a lot of different factors are are in play before this is rolled out. All right. Well, Tracy, thank you very much for your time on this. Oh, yeah. No, you're welcome. Appreciate that. That's Tracy Crawford. Tracy is BC's regional manager for MAD Canada. That is Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And as you heard, they do have some concerns about this pilot project that BC Ferries is launching in the month of June. 
You know, there are only three institutions in Canada that will train you for a career in railway engineering. For a huge country that is linked by trains, that is not very many schools. Well, BCIT has been doing this for more than 15 years. And if you want to know what the career prospects are like, well, guess what? We're about to tell you all about it. Vince Jones is with us now, railway instructor at the BCIT Anasis Island campus. Hi, Vince. Hi, good thank, afternoon. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. How long have you been doing this for a living? I've been in the railway business for about 40 years. What do you yes. love about it? Uh, I love the, the fact that you get to be your own boss most of the time. You know, you get to, you get to work independently, usually. You're usually in the middle of nowhere, all by yourself. So you have scenery to and like that. Yes, you have to like that. <laughs> you know, if you love nature, yeah. you know, if you love Canada is the most beautiful country in the world. If you want to be out there, seeing the scenery, uh, being with nature, it, it's not a bad, there's no better job than being in the railway, I think. All right, well, let's talk about the prospects, the job prospects for somebody who enters this program. What are they like? Job prospects are very good. Uh, the railway is always looking for people. Uh, CNCP, all the major railways, they're always looking for somebody. Uh, they can never find enough people. Really? It's, yeah, it's a very high demand industry. They're always looking and we can never get enough students. And it's just, I guess it's just about getting the word out. But yes, it's Is it just uh, not one of those sexy industries that everybody knows about. Because if you're telling me that there's like a job that somebody can go into, a, a, a training program, how long does it take? Five weeks. And five then, weeks? Yeah, five weeks. And then if you want to get in the class ones, we have another three weeks. So maybe a total of eight weeks. So that's eight weeks to get yourself a job that pays anywhere from fifty to $80,000 a year. To start with. To start with. And it goes up from there. So and these are full-time jobs with defined pension plans, uh, good benefits. Yeah. And just I've worked it in all my life. I've loved the railway. This is a... You get to move up, become a locomotive engineer or train dispatcher or manager or whatever you want. Uh, there's about 50 different types of jobs in the railway industry. So you can come in from any direction. You can right. come in from classical railway jobs or you can come in from, say, a computer programmer or business, that kind of thing. And so are a lot of people retiring then? Is that why there's so many openings right now? Yeah, like myself. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I took up teaching instead. So yeah, it was one of those things. But yeah, there's lots of people around my age that are leaving the business and they can't fill the spots fast enough. So if somebody were to go into this program then, what are the chances of getting a job right out of the program? We're pretty much 100%. Pretty what? close, yeah. Pretty close to 100%. So if you're, they come to you. They actually show up at the classroom. So Vince, like this is an amazing career, right? Yeah. You can't get enough students into the program. They get hired virtually 100%. Their starting salary is between fifty dollars and $80,000 a year. Starting yeah. salary. Yeah. Why do you think it is that you have trouble finding students? I think it's just the word isn't there. Like People don't think about the railway as a job. They, they see it on TV and they see it in the movies. They don't really, they see the old types of railroad jobs that back in the day of being a, a railroad conductor or something like that. But really the railway industry has changed so much in the past 20, 30 years. Uh, it's not the same as it used to be. They're, it's very high technology. These things, I've seen things that are right out of science fiction movies like Minority Report where they have right. giant screens where guys can zoom in on any train in Canada and watch it live. These kinds of things are happening. So they have, they're embracing technology a lot these days. It used to be back when I heard on the technology really wasn't there, but now 
Railways are a technology business for sure. So what kind of training do you need? Like what kind of prerequisites would you need to get into the program? You usually need grade 12. Uh, They prefer that you have a high school education. You should have a driver's license because they you do a lot of driving sometimes. Vince, these are pretty basic requirements. These are basic requirements to get in. Yeah, grade twelve, driver's license. Yeah, just we just need warm bodies. That's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> you're seriously making me consider uh, a <laughs> yeah. career. And you were talking about the movies. I had to ask Vince if he's seen the movie Unstoppable. Have you watched? Oh, of course. Stuff? Yes. yes. Is yeah. it at all accurate? It's. Based on a true story, yeah. and uh, I would say that it's somewhat accurate, but there's a lot of gaps in there that are missing. They don't explain a lot, especially when it comes to, you know, how things happen. And because the railway air brakes and systems like that can be fairly complicated, and they're not going to try to explain that to you in a movie. I would have listened if it was Chris Pine explaining it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but that whole idea of you've got the older kind of generation in the railway and the younger generation coming in—is that part accurate? That's very accurate, and uh, just so you know, the fastest growing population right now is the Indigenous community, so the railways are embracing diversity. And we're just starting with BCIT to start training Indigenous students. We're on our fourth class here starting in May. Uh, these are great students. Uh, they make, they, they'll stand out in the rain and the snow, and they, they never complain about anything. They, they're a natural fit for the railway. Um, and I'm always excited and honored to teach them. They always make really good students, and they get hired as soon as they get out. So is this right across Canada? Like, can you say, oh, I want to work in the railway, but I want to stay, say, in Metro Vancouver? Like, uh, what is the job like? What does it depends on what you want to do. Like, yeah. if you want to work in the train business, they like to put you in areas where they have what are called shortage locations, where they kind of need people. If you're working in uh, shops or in, say, computer science or something like that, you're going to be working on at, a, at the same location all the time. But if you like the dream of traveling across Canada and being in a locomotive, that kind of thing, seeing the scenery, yes, you end up seeing a lot of parts of Canada. Yeah. Is it? Are they long days? Like, what is the shift schedule? Like? It used to be back when I was hired. Were hired on the days were long, but now they have work rest rules. Uh, they take. Uh, care of you as far as your work and rest as much as they can nowadays i mean some some days can be longer but you know a 10-hour like, day might be a, a long day for you, you know? okay so that's not used to be longer but now they're they're shorter for this okay so i'm curious then like do you just travel to the a next like you could leave here travel to the next location and then travel back is that how that works or how how's the uh, usually they'll take you uh say you're in a train they'll put you on a train to your location. So you leave here from Vancouver and you go to, let's say, Kamloops, and they put you in a hotel, and then the next day they, you come back from Kamloops on train. So and all that's taken care of? They take care of everything, yeah. Absolutely. If they, and if they want you to work in a shortage location, they take care of everything. They take care of your hotel. They take care of your meals. And if you need a car, they'll give you that. So these kinds of things are always usually taken care of because they need you to work there and they want you to stay. Vince, I, the way you're explaining it, all of it, I have a hard time believing that there's all these openings available. There's a lot, and I can't even. I hear I'm hearing thousands, not just hundreds. The the railways are looking. There's so many people retiring. There's such a high demand right now, and we can't keep our students in the classroom. Sometimes they're taking them out of the class before they're even finished. Because I'm assuming then that the companies can finish the training. Yeah, so what they do is they take you to Winnipeg or Calgary, depending on if it's a class one CN or CP, 
and they put you through another training program. So the the training never stops in the railway business. You're always training. You're always learning. Yeah. But yeah, for good reason. Do you miss it? Mm, I like teaching. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. It's it's great. I mean, I I see them go from coming off the street to being safety conscious railroaders and wanting to live the railway lifestyle and I, I, I just see that and the confidence levels and everything and it's, it's great to see that and I, lo- I love teaching it's great so you're saying it, it, the railroads are embracing diversity so men women y- you name it can yeah as you know the railways are really embracing diversity these days they even have their brand new CN locomotives have the indigenous partnership logos on them so this is how serious they're taking this and like I said, the Indigenous community is growing faster than any other group in Canada. So where can people get more information? Because you're making it sound really good. So I hope we can put some more students in your program. Where can people get info? It's as easy as bcit.ca slash rail. That's how easy it is. You're kidding me. No, that's as easy as it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And how often do the program start? Is it, is it like a set time, a couple times a year? We usually run, because they're short programs, we can run three, four, five a year. Uh, and so we can keep the classes going all year so if you don't get into this class you can get into the next one or if you're just say you're just finishing high school for instance you can wait till september and go then so you don't have to wait for six months there's no waiting lists right now like in a lot of other programs there's huge waiting lists no waiting list right now to no do this. waiting lists no you have sold it vince all right bcit.ca slash rail is that what you said that's what it is check it out vince thank you for joining us today thank you if you wanted to know about the future of work, there it is right there. It's in the railway sector. Uh, you can find out more from BCIT. And we are learning more about the victims and the suspect in the Penticton shooting. Four people were shot and killed earlier this week. And a 68-year-old man named John Burton is in custody facing charges. Now, the landlord of the man charged in the case has called him a model tenant. Now, for more on this, we are joined now by Global News reporter Shelby Tom in Penticton. Hi, Shelby. Good morning, Simi. Now you've good been yeah, Sorry. <laughs> good afternoon. Uh, you've been following this story every single day. What have you learned about this? I have. So I spent the better part of a week investigating this story and just trying to put the pieces together and to figure out what happened here. And, and this morning I put uh, the final piece together. And of course, police have not commented on a potential motive, but I wanted to break down for your listeners, uh, what a potential motive could have been. So the accused shooter, 68-year-old John Britton, uh, he's been renting a home near Lakeview and Heels in downtown Penticton for the past five years after separating from his wife. He's a retired city engineer, most recently working for the private engineering firm Ecora. Uh, We believe that he sees his first victim, Rudy Winter, pruning a tree across the street from his own home. So the first shooting occurred across the street from where John Britton lives, and we were able to confirm that this morning with the landlord. Uh, Rudy was known to do landscaping work and odd jobs at his friend's properties, and so the first victim was pruning a tree, and we understand that uh, Britton is accused of grabbing a rifle, shooting Rudy four times in the back across the street from his own home. 
home, and he's now facing a charge of second-degree murder in that death, which means police don't believe that initial shooting was premeditated. But then police believe Britton jumps in his black Volkswagen Jetta, and he travels to the other end of town on Cornwall Drive. Now, this is the neighborhood where his ex-wife currently resides. He's then accused of entering the home directly across the street from his ex-wife, Susan and Barry Wanch inside their garage and killing them there. He's then accused of going next door. Their next door neighbor is 75-year-old Darlene Nippleberg. He's accused of then going to her home, shooting her there, and then driving himself to the police station and turning himself in, allegedly committing four homicides within one hour. The neighbors must just be in shock, Shelby. Have you spoken to them? Neighbors are in shock, and it's interesting speaking to neighbors of John Britton, the accused shooter, and his family and friends. They say this is completely um, out of character. He's been described as a nice guy, mild-mannered, non-violent, described as a model tenant. Uh, You heard the mayor of Penticton during the press conference the day after the shooting, uh, as he was a former city engineer, also describing him as a nice guy, a guy who wouldn't hurt a fly. I was able to get some more information yesterday on the connection between the alleged shooter and his alleged victim. So we were able to confirm uh, by speaking to family and friends, reviewing land title documents and court records, that all four victims are the registered owners of their homes on Cornwall Drive, and all four victims are the direct neighbors beside and across the house from the alleged shooter's ex-wife. So we explored uh, what is the ex-wife's connection to these potential victims. And we learned from former city officials and other sources that I have here in Penticton that Kathy Britton, the alleged shooter's ex-wife, has filed dozens of bylaw complaints against her neighbors in recent years. Apparently, she had the biggest issue with Rudy Winter, the first victim who lives right next door to her home. Apparently, she was concerned about her health due to poor air quality from neighbors' wood-burning stove. Um, The ex-official says Miss Britton didn't believe the chimney was high enough and smoke would billow into her yard. There was also issues about drainage and a tree being cut down. And then she also had issues with the couple who lived across the street, the second and third victim. Uh, She was upset with the Wanches because Barry Wanch was refurbishing furniture as a hobby in his garage, and she thought that he was operating a business without a a license. Um, So these ex-city officials told us that Miss Britton uh, was relentless in her campaign against her neighbours, calling City Hall and individual city councillors so many times that the city had to delegate one person just to deal with her files and her complaints. Um, Again, we want to be clear that Kathy Britton is not facing any charges at this point, and we don't know her involvement in this tragedy. If anything, uh, we do know that Kathy and John divorced in 2013. They used to live together on that Cornwall Drive property, uh, but John had moved away after they separated. His landlord said he was at his current home downtown for the last five years. Uh, is worth pointing out the scene was cleared yesterday on Cornwall, but police tape remained up outside of Kathy's home, only Kathy's home, and she was escorted in by plainclothes officers. Uh, we did try to speak with her when she was exiting to get her side of the story, but she uh, declined to comment. Okay, and I understand as well, Shelby, that you've had a chance to speak to people who who heard the shots and were kind of in the vicinity when this happened. 
That's right. So this morning I interviewed John Britton's landlord, Tony Friesen, and he said John uh, was living at that home for the past five years. Again, the first shooting took place across the street from Britton's home, which is this property that Tony Friesen owns, a fourplex. And Friesen says he was there. He was fixing up his property at the time when the shooting occurred. He describes what he heard. Take a listen. I was on the other end of the building on Brunswick Street installing uh, a window and we're installing a window and all of a sudden you hear bang and you kind of think you did something. Then there was a pause and then two more bangs and we just assumed it was something going on next door. Didn't give it much thought until I got a phone call from somebody else saying there's been a shooting on your street and then I came around the back and saw what had happened. The man laying on the ground and no, really the police were just arriving and so you know, police are here, so I, I, I just went back to my what I was working on. That is so interesting, Shelby. So, I mean, he hears the shots, but he, he doesn't possibly imagine that this could be a shooting on a street, because who would think that? That's right. This is a, a quiet uh, beach town, you know, population 35,000. We just don't see uh, violence uh, at all in our community. We have issues with property crime, but very low uh, violent crime rate, and to have a quadruple homicide in this small Okanagan town has just uh, shaken everyone to their core. Uh, More than 300 people showed up to a candlelight vigil in Gyro Park in downtown Penticton last night. There was a moment of silence. A number of dignitaries spoke. Um, Just speaking to to, uh, the the small town uh, community, we had the superintendent of the RCMP even came down to the vigil and uh, shared his thoughts and people uh, gathered and, and grieved uh, these these immense losses and 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 sent their thoughts and prayers uh, to the family of the victims the yeah. the, the families of course um, these these are families of of seniors and retirees who were gunned down yeah. with with no criminal records you know going about their business these families are absolutely shocked yeah. we're learning a little bit more about them we know that uh, Darlene 75 years old was caring for her 48 year old daughter with Down syndrome she was described as loving and kind a longtime Penticton resident uh, Susan and Barry Wanch had recently moved to Penticton from Isias they were recently retired they retired in Penticton as again Barry had that a uh, hobby of uh, repairing yeah. uh, antiques and then we know that uh, Rudy Winter, 71 years old, a, a grandparent who liked to do odd jobs for his friends, and he was landscaping at the time that he was gunned down. So these are just not the people you would um, yeah. ever imagine to be victims of homicide. Sounds like it as well. And you mentioned that the, one of the people you spoke to as well uh, knew John Britton as a tenant. Yes. Yeah, so Tony Friesen, again, John Britton's landlord, um, I asked him, you know, what what was John like? What were your interactions like with him? And, and he echoed uh, John's other friends and neighbors, describing him as a nice guy, quiet, uh, mild ma- manner, didn't cause any trouble. Uh, here's what Friesen had to say about his interactions with John. Good. Yeah. I mean, the, the tenant everybody would want because there's no trouble. Always uh, pays rent on time. Um, kept a good place, uh, no issues. The other tenants in the building uh, have very good, had a very good view of him. Um, and they're just as shocked as I am because he was nice to talk to, easy guy to talk to. Okay, so Shelby, do we know when the next court appearance is going to be? 
Yeah, so on Tuesday, uh, Britton appeared in Penticton Provincial Court. He is facing one count of second-degree murder in Rudy's death. That was the first victim. And then three counts of first-degree murder for the following three victims. Um, he was remanded in custody at the Okanagan Correctional Center. His next court date is May 8th. All right. Shelby, thank you so much for this. Thank you. That is Shelby Tom, our global news reporter in Penticton, uh, walking us through what has happened so far the last couple of days after the Penticton shooting, which has shocked everybody. A community still recovering there, still in shock, it sounds like, too, for the most part. Well, here's an idea that has been kind of floating around for a while now, but it's getting serious, the discussion about it. It's a gondola service that would take passengers from the Expo and Millennium Lines on the SkyTrain up to Simon Fraser University at the top of Burnaby Mountain, right? That they, we wouldn't have to have the buses going up and down the mountain anymore. This gondola would do the trick instead. It costs around $200 million to build, and there is some support out there for the project. It has a new big advocate today in the Burnaby Board of Trade. Their CEO, Paul Holden, has written to Burnaby City Council asking that there be more consultation between the city and TransLink to get this project moving. So just before we came on air, Paul Holden joined me in studio to tell us why he supports this idea. Well, Paul, thank you so much for uh, joining us today to talk about this. Now, I know other projects around Metro Vancouver get a lot of attention, like the Surrey SkyTrain or the UBC Extension, but what is the Burnaby Board of Trade advocating for here? Uh, well, well, in this particular case, you know, transportation has been uh, an important topic on our radar for, for some while. Transportation, helping people get around within our city of, of Burnaby, but also getting to and from and through the city. Um, and this particular project, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a growing um, demand for transportation up the mountain. You know, there's currently 25,000 people a day commuting uh, up and down, and that's expected to grow significantly over the coming years. And, and there are times when the current uh, transportation offerings are just not enough. So we see this as a very, very low cost in, in relative terms uh, opportunity to address what is a current and will be a, a growing need. Right. So the gondola, it, it is on the list, right, of, of TransLink projects? It's on the list, but it hasn't been put on what you might call the uh, a to be funded list. It's, ah. it's, it's on the, uh, like the, the list. list? Of, it's on the, the the list of projects that, that they would like to have happen, um, but uh, there hasn't been specific funding put towards it as yet. So, from our point of view, we're asking for that to be looked at. We're asking for the process of consultation and dialogue to begin. And uh, and as I say, when when you look at the cost of it, and when you look at the the uh, the multitude of benefits that we see for a Burnaby Mountain gondola, we, we'd like to see it advanced. All right, let's talk about that. So, how would it work, and what would be the cost? Well, the cost is is less than two hundred million, which in it sounds like a lot of money in 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 some respects. But when you're looking at transportation infrastructure, um, it's really not a lot. Um, and and the savings in terms of 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 what can happen, operational savings are significant. Uh, and and in terms of what what it can do in terms of of diverting the the buses that will now no longer be needed to use uh, in in other uh, in, in other areas, it's it's a significant benefit from that point of view. But but really, we see the benefits of it being a quick way to get people up and down, um, a way of getting people up and down during inclement weather, which doesn't happen every day, but happens enough that it's an inconvenience. Um, and, and as I said, we see there are other economic benefits that will come out of this project that make it a really good value investment. Now, I remember from my years of going to SFU is inclement weather is like the toughest part is immediately that becomes a risk of going up the mountain. The buses get <laughs> shut down, car, it becomes a little bit more treacherous. So would the gondola be able to perform in any type of weather then? 
Well, my understanding is that given that it's a, a mountain gondola project um, and, and, and there are mountain gondolas in all sorts of places where weather is, is inclement most of the time, um, it would be built to resist that. So we, we wouldn't foresee there be, being um, too much in the way of issues when it comes to weather affecting the performance of, of, of the gondola. Uh, okay, so how would it look? Like where would it start? How long would this journey take? Where do people park? Uh, there are a couple of, of, of options that have, that have been looked at already. Um, the, the the quickest option is is it would be from Lake City Productions uh, Skytrain Station um, and heads right up to um, to near the bus loop area of, of SFU. Um, it takes about six minutes, um, and uh, so people would be going from that Lake City area up there and, and back down again. Six minutes. That's pretty good yeah. from Lake City. That's not yeah. even the bottom of Gillardy Way. That's right. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty quick, pretty quick route. So that would have to change a lot, though, in terms of the bus route or the, where the right now the buses go to the station beyond that, right? I believe they do, and then they you take the buses up from from, from there. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Is there room then for like parking and for people to? Um, there is. I mean, at the present moment, people people do park there. There's not a lot of parking yeah. um, that, that's around there. Um, but obviously, people will park there whether they're parking for the bus or whether they're parking for the um, for, for the for the proposed gondola. But uh, there, there's a little bit of parking there. It's not not huge, but obviously, a lot of people get there from other SkyTrain um, right. stations. So it's not everyone's going to be driving directly there to park and, 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 and then head up on the, on the gondola. People will be getting there as, from other parts of the SkyTrain network. What is SFU willing to do here? Because we know that UBC is willing to chip in to get that SkyTrain built out there. What's SFU willing to do? Um, I think that's a discussion, obviously, that, that they will be getting involved with as, as, as the project uh, pr- proceeds. Um, obviously, SFU has a big stake in this, and, and, yeah. and I'm sure there'll be some significant conversations that'll take place in terms of what they're prepared to, to contribute to it. So this sounds like a pretty big gondola. How many people do you think this could carry? Uh, it's it's um, pr- projected that it would carry 3,000 passengers per hour. So it's a pretty big. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty big uh, capacity. Um, we we think that actually, it, it, and it's, we've said this in our submission that we think uh, three thousand should be the the starting point for the capacity that they aim for. Mm-hmm. There are ways of making the uh, if they make the the, the gondola uh, more frequent, uh, which which it is possible to do. Uh, they they could um, increase that to four or five thousand per hour. But three thousand to start off with is what the projection is. That's pretty good. So there's what twenty five thousand students mm-hmm. up at Simon Fraser. University? Well, 25,000 people are commuting each way or commuting each day um, to and from the mountain. And there's a residential community up there too, isn't Well, that's there? another point. So the residential community is growing. Yeah. Um, it's expected to be around 9,000 people uh, in the residential community up there. Um, there's a growing business community that's serving both the students and the, the residents up there. And, and one thing that, that we've, we've mentioned in, a, in, in, in our conversations on this as well is, is other benefits such as uh, tourism benefits. You know, Burnaby as a city attracts a lot of people for uh, for sports tourism and for other tourism activities. And we see that a trip up the gondola to the top of Burnaby Mountain, which is a beautiful place, not just the home of SFU, but there's a lot of, of, of great things to do up there. We see it having spin-off economic benefits in that order as well. So what more do you need to do here? I mean, this is a campaign that the Burnaby Board of Trade is undertaking. Who, do you, who else do you need to get on board? Well, the, the initial thing that we did was submit a letter to Mayor and Council um, in, in Burnaby, and we'll be engaging with them to, to gauge their level of, of support for the project. Um, obviously, SFU is, is, is a great partner of ours at the, at the Board of Trade, and we've had numerous discussions with them 
uh, leading up to the submission that we've that we've made. Um, so um, yeah, we're 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 we've we've voiced our support and we're we're out there now, ready to engage and ready to have those conversations. It seems like this is the way these projects work now, though, isn't it, Paul? Like you have to really campaign to get your project noticed. And so is that what the Burnaby Board of Trade is doing here? Is saying, listen, we want you to know this one is wanted. Yeah, and, and I think for us, you know, it's it's not. I wouldn't necessarily call it our campaign. It's it's a project that we're out there to um, to support. And, um, and and I think that's what we're doing here. We've voiced our support for the for the project. There are others who are would would see it as their campaign, I suspect. But but we're out there to say yes. We support it from the point of view of of, of its role as as part of the transportation um, uh, offerings that we have within the city, the, the transportation options to get people uh, up and down the mountain. Uh, so we're here to support that. We're here to engage in the conversations, and we're here to to engage as part of the the, the consultation processes as well. So we, we we would very much like to see it happen. Okay. So what's the next step here? Uh, the next step for us is, as I say, the letter's gone off to, to Mayor and Council. We'll wait to see um, the, the response and, and the discussions as they as they follow there. Um, and as I say, really, it's not our campaign to drive necessarily, um, but we're whatever is, is the next stage, whether it's through TransLink um, and or SFU and, and or the City of Burnaby, uh, we're here to play our part. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Paul Holden, CEO of the Burnaby Board of Trades.